Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode we're going to take a brief view at Dungeons and Dragons and how it might appeal to Call of Cthulhu players. Before we get into all that good stuff, however, what is going on? Well, this episode is going out on Christmas Eve 2019. Oh, God. Ho, ho, ho! I haven't even started my shopping yet. I was expecting ho, 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 now I've got a machine gun to suddenly (laughs) come in there. I'm still waiting for them to uh, rebrand it Yithmas. I think that has a much more uh, popular ring to it. And we are fast coming up to the end of the year. And with the end of the year comes the end of your chance to get issue five of the Blasphemous Tome. If you are backing us by the end of December 2019, you will get at least one copy. We'll put a link in the show notes that explains what you get at different backer levels. But at the very least, what you get is a very cool little printed zine that we've put together with our own bare hands. Yeah, I've still got paper cuts all over them from last time. <laughs> T- tell the people what we get in it, Matt. No more Korea font! Woohoo! <laughs> tell them about the fucking scenario, Matt. <laughs> that too. <laughs> yes, uh, we have a scenario in there entitled Number 22 by yours truly. A little slice of modern life in, the, in a mythos world. And lots of other cool articles and artwork as well from... Such great artists as John Sumrow, who you can find online and who has a Patreon of his own. So we encourage you to go and take a look at that. Yes, and there are also going to be a few little spot bits of art vignettes that our good friend Evan Dawkins sent us, and we'll put a link to his Patreon in there as well. And now onto our main topic, the appeal of D&D. This may seem like an odd topic for a horror podcast. No shit! (laughs) <laughs> but as, as Paul is so fond of reminding us, D&D is where it all came from. And also, there have been plenty of horror settings for D&D over the years. There have been plenty of scenarios that have drawn upon horror elements. And as we'll touch on later in the episode, probably, there's even a bit of Call of Cthulhu in there. Of the three of us, I'm the one who plays D&D most regularly, and perhaps more so than you guys. But we are doing an episode about D&D, but I want to put my cards on the table and saying I'm not really going to put myself forward as a D&D expert. There are lots of people who know more about it than I do. But So we're going to talk about the, the broad appeal of it and draw upon some of our experience of the game. Yeah, this is not going to be a conclusive history of the game. This is not going to be an in-depth examination. This is an entirely idiosyncratic, personal set of opinions. What it's probably going to be is three guys jabbering on about D&D. As opposed to three guys jabbering on about anything else, which is any other given episode. Precisely. Now, I remember about this time last year, actually, two of us going down to Dragon Meet in London and being on a panel where there was talk of, well, all, all games are just carbon copies of, uh, of D&D. Let's go dig into that a bit more and say, where, where does this game come from? And is there any real validity behind that <laughs> yeah i'm not sure about carbon copies but yeah. certainly maybe owe oh, some of their dna to it i mean dnd was well, well hang on if i remember correctly your thesis paul yeah. was that every other role-playing game is just dnd with house rules oh it's a hack of dnd that's right so there was that word hack that uh, <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad even with a fucking sore throat i still managed to win that debate Booyah! <laughs> <laughs> uh so 
Andy, you started with uh, Gary Gygax and Dave Arnson in 1974, so like 45 mm. years ago, with a, a little white box with three little brown books in it. Yeah, they uh, published, what, about a thousand copies initially? Apparently, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm sure they're well sought after now. They go for about a grand online. Really? And the rest. Yeah. But, I mean, that there are copies of that available on Drive-Thru RPG, you know, updated, released copies of it. And it's very interesting reading through those and seeing... Just considering what you would have made of that as the first RPG you'd come across with no experience of other games if you didn't have people to tell you what to do with it. Yeah, because they'd previously published like three years before this game called Chainmail, which was a skirmish war game. And this was like an evolution of Chainmail. So this was taking a lot of the ideas of miniature wargaming and sort of saying, right, but what if you just played a character? Yeah, it moves quite away from Chainmail, though. Yeah. Um, but it did use as an option some of the rules from Chainmail. And then through the 70s and into the early 80s, the game evolves in retrospect really quickly, actually. Because mm. I can remember, you know, some years ago, before I looked into this, my friends would sort of say, oh, well, we started with the Red Box D&D. And I'm like, oh, really? So you've been playing it longer than me then, because I started with Advanced D&D, but you started with Basic D&D. But that came out after AD. But that came out afterwards. Yeah, yeah there's not there's not really one D and D. There's well, a whole well, actually, bunch of them. Actually, no. Sorry, Redbox D and D came out after. There was a yeah. I I did look this up because I couldn't remember it. There've been so many editions. But yeah, there was a basic D and D that came out in 1977, which was shortly followed by AD and D. The idea that TSR, which was Gargax's company, the idea that they had was to use the the basic box as a sort of way of getting people in and providing them with the, the basics you know that they needed, as the name implied. But the idea was that as soon as you got to a certain level, you needed to go advanced. And advanced started coming out in like 78, I think. No, no, uh, no it was still 77. It, 77 it was with the Monster the, Manual, right? Yes. So that's a few years before the, the red box that everybody you know, more commonly sort of thinks about that introduced so many people to D&D and there was like the Moldvay edition. But there are quite a few different strands and they're not all quite the same game, but they are pretty much the same game. Yeah, I mean, subsequent versions of the box set pretty much tidied up the rules and tried to make them more coherent and and easier to access. So, I mean, it's like, I, I think with the basic version, that each iteration of it sort of honed it a bit more. Or took it in a slightly different direction as well, yeah, yeah. And certainly my first experience of it was just with a few like photocopied sheets that some older kids did for us from their, I guess, Player's Handbook and Dungeon Master's Guide with a few pages from the Monster Manual thrown in and we didn't really have reference to what a lot of the things ha- meant. So we had spell lists, we didn't have spell descriptions. So we just kind of made it up, really. So that was AD&D? It was A D and D that we were drawing from. Yeah. 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 So that was the first kind of D D game that I played was A D and D. That was the only one I knew about. Yeah, that that was the game I started out with as well, back in about eighty two, eighty three. Uh, it was the first RPG I played and because I didn't know anything else, I you know, I really got into it, really enjoyed it. When I came around to run it for the first time a few years later, I naturally read those books from the point of view of, you know, I'm going to be a dungeon master now. Oh boy, were those books not good at explaining the game. Mm. Over the years, we've, as as RPG writers, learnt quite a lot about conveying information in a useful way. But those books were chaotic, contradictory, badly laid out. 
Funny enough that we're putting this after our recent exploration of Mythos Tomes, because it certainly sounds a bit like what you're describing there. Yeah. I'd promised to run D&D for a few friends at university. I, I played plenty of it. And I thought, okay, this is the time where I sit down and I read the DMG and I, I read all the DM-only rules and get a handle on it. And I remember sitting down and just getting more and more confused and bits of me dying inside where I, you know, I was sitting there thinking, how do I make all this work? Mm. And certainly if you go back to White Box, there's quite a few rules about death and taxes and inheritance and things like this. And you're like, <laughs> who used any of that? As well as like ship-to-ship combat and all manner of stuff. It's like, I never used any of that in D&D. Yeah. And loads of stuff about hirelings and henchmen and, and so on, which, yeah, sure enough, it can be part of the game. But plenty of groups don't really use that stuff, in my experience. That's where it was all going wrong. All the action was supposed to happen after characters died sorting through <laughs> their shit. Well, it was passing your shit onto the, your next player character, I think, but then having to yeah. pay a certain percentage in death duties and all that. <laughs> And then we get on to 1989 and the second edition of AD&D. Have either of you ever played Second Ed? Nope. I think that's the one I haven't played because mm. in that late 80s period to the, through the 90s, I'd moved on to playing Ars Magica rather than mm. which kind of filled the D&D fix, I guess. So I didn't play second edition, but I think I've played all the others generally, like played advanced and basic and third edition, fourth edition, fifth edition. Yeah, I'd, I'd never played it. I've got no experience of second edition at all. But when I was reading up on it, one thing that surprised me, I, I didn't realise, was as well as the sort of mechanical tweaks and the changes to you know the, the rule set, one of the things that it was designed to do was sort of destigmatize the game a bit because it came in the wake of the satanic panic of the 80s. And so they were deliberately trying to play down things like devils and demons in the game and make it much more kind of family-friendly, or at least religious family-friendly, fantasy fun. Right. Weird. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I mean, that, that, that really did surprise me. I want my spells to summon demons and make <laughs> packs with them and all that thing, you know. And you have a bit of LARP at the table, get in your robes and cry, Hail Satan! <laughs> that was yeah. all that. But we do that every game. Shh, don't tell them. The whole satanic panic thing was more of an American thing, but didn't any of you experience that over here? Nope. No. Well, I, I was living in the US at the time. Oh, right. Okay. And even then, I didn't experience it. Um, maybe that's because I was living in New York yeah. City. I'm, I'm sure if I'd been living in, in rural uh, America or, or even the suburbs, I might have seen a bit more evidence of it. But yeah, no one I knew at the time seemed to have any experience of it. Oh, right. I mean, certainly friends I've got in America, um, like Raymond, who do, did a podcast, he, he mentioned about it because he grew up in Georgia where that was whole satanic panic thing was a big concern. And a friend of mine did borrow, no, he lent his um, one of his D&D books to a friend at school and then uh, the friend came back saying his parents had burnt it overnight so mm. he couldn't return it. Yeah, and I don't think it quite exists to the same extent today, but there are still echoes of it around. I remember, it was probably about five or six years ago, seeing a post on probably RPG Net, where someone was saying, you know, I'm looking for games I can play with my family, but we're all devout Christians, so we don't want anything that involves magic because obviously that's satanic. So, you know, what RPGs can you recommend to a good Christian family? Damn it, I should have been on that thread and instantly put cult. <laughs> but uh... yeah, you know, I mean, from, from the outset, they were saying, you know, D&D is a non-starter. We can't play that. It's satanic. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I don't know what to yeah. say to that. But there are people out there that have that thing yeah 
I mean, there was plenty of support for it around at the time. And obviously there's their classic Jack Chick tract, which we've all seen at some stage. No Black Leaf, no! Yeah, which is, oh, yeah, we'll link to that from the show notes on the off chance that someone out there hasn't seen it before, because it is just absolutely batshit fun. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there, there, there was even that, what was it, Mazes and Monsters. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. The, the the film, TV film that was made in the early 80s, that was a very sensationalised version of a real-life tragedy. What was it, the guy's name, Dallas Egbert? I can't, remember, like I can't remember his name, I just remember that he was in, found under, in the steam tunnels or the utility tunnels under his university. But this is all just symptomatic of the fact of how much D&D broke into the mainstream, I think, of, of the consciousness of the time. Because I mean, there were plenty of other games that were perhaps more, you know, embraced the occult and so on. But D&D was the one that people knew about, um, yeah. that the non-role players knew about, and that uh, became the thing to hit with a stick. And also, as you mentioned there, I mean, the other thing that we kind of forgot for a long time was just how popular RPGs were at that time. Yeah. There were, you know, RPG shops, you know, really large RPG shops in, you know, most big towns. There were a huge selection of games available. They sold bucket loads. And for for a long time after that, I thought that RPGs were going to dwindle out and ultimately die. I mean, we'll come back to the fact that that doesn't seem to be happening later in the episode and and try to understand why. But, yeah, I I really thought for a long time we'd seen the glory days in the 80s. You know, that was good, but, you know, it's all over now. You know, rather than hitting it with a stick, I would have thought a 10-foot pole would be more appropriate. It's the long stick. Yeah. Yeah. This particular type of stick. But then in 1997, TSR goes bankrupt. And Wizards of the Coast take over, and they make changes. Now, you were saying, Paul, that you had played 3rd edition D&D. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So that came out in 2000. What was different about that? They seem to have worked a lot of the stuff from the ground up and kind of rethought it about how the spells worked and about the structure of D&D and the explanations for things. So when you read the book, you were saying, Scott, how some of the earlier books weren't structured so well and didn't communicate stuff so effectively. I remember getting the new Third Ed Player's Handbook when that came out and and reading that, and it was like, oh, this all feels well thought through and well structured. So, you know, it was very much D&D as we know it, but yeah, a, a, a revision of the rules. I don't remember all the details, so I can't give you a, a, a like a critical analysis of the changes. But I remember thinking through like the the spells, the whole thing of you learn a spell and then you forgot it. That was kind of gone. It was like you um, set up the trigger for it in your mind, and then you could execute that trigger. It kind of it felt more of a convincing rationalization for how that worked. Well, it's interesting that you picked up on that because this whole idea of forgetting spells, it seems like the kind of thing that a game designer comes up with <laughs> as an excuse for limiting resources, but it didn't originate in D&D. Yeah, it's Jack Vance, isn't it? Yeah, it came, from, it came from the Dying Earth books, yeah. The, there was this idea that spells were so difficult they were so demanding to learn and internalize that yeah it was exactly that you had to sit down cram it all in your head and as soon as you cast it bang it was gone but when you separate that from the fiction and just have it as a discrete statement in a game you're like well why with not much explanation of why or justification so it's like i can never really understand that 
It is actually quite well explained in uh, the early Dying Earth stories. I mean, if anyone you know wants to go back to that style of D and D and is interested in a a fictional rationalisation for it, I really do recommend reading those stories. If I remember right, it's actually in the very first Dying Earth yes. um, story in the collection, the um, uh, the sci-fi masterworks series put out a collection of all the Tales of the Dying Earth books and short stories in one volume. And I think it's the very first one in there that goes over it. Yeah, I mean, well, they, there were four books in the series, and it was the first one. All four books are quite different in the series. Mm-hmm. But it was that first one that really sort of spelt out a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Then you get to the light-heart, more light-hearted, uh, is it Kugel? Yes. Yeah, later on. Did you ever play third edition D&D? Put a point five on the end of it, and I did. Let's get on to that then, because that came out a few years later in 2003. And it wasn't as... I mean, yeah, this is probably something that's worth touching on now, that you know, when we look at new editions of other RPGs, they're very rarely that different from each other. There'll be rules tweaks. I mean, even 7th edition Call of Cthulhu isn't radically different from other versions of Call of Cthulhu. It's backward compatible. But with D&D... There isn't really compatibility between editions. I mean, you you can convert, but they are quite different games. Well, with some editions more than others, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, the core resolution mechanic is much the same, but characters are quite different. Uh, The way, as you said, spells work quite different. But 3 to 3.5 wasn't that big a step in my perception. Yeah, that that wasn't. That was like a point release. Yeah, but a lot of people made a big deal about it being a big step. So you said you you played 3.5, Matt. Yes, um, played at university, actually. All right, nope, just up the road from where we are now. Literally <laughs> the same road. But yeah, um, I'm still trying to work out where this appeal thing's coming from. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what were your experiences with D&D? Oh, I like the setting. Can't abide the fucking mechanics, but the setting's good. Well, but, the but, setting, when you say the setting, I mean, forgot, what setting? Forgotten Realms. Right. But, I mean, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, it's just not my style of game. It's very mechanic-heavy, that there seems to be a mechanic for everything. It's, I always find using a D20 is very limiting, that it's just the number between 1 and 20, you add the stuff on your sheet, but slowly as you go up levels, oh, you get a bit more power here, oh, you get a bit more here, oh, I've got another D4 on my magic missile, oh, it's, it's just very one mode uh, it just doesn't have much of an appeal beyond hey i'm going into a dungeon and i'm gonna slay a whole load of more monsters before i go into the next dungeon and do exactly the same thing uh no it's just it's just not for me but i mean that latter complaint sounds like more of a complaint about the style of scenarios and the the setting you played rather than the mechanics but it's the mechanics of the vehicle by which you do that and if the mechanics are interesting mm. i can kind of uh, probably get behind it if they're fun mechanics a bit like with, for instance, Duty and Honor. I'm not a combat person, but I like the combat mechanics in Duty and Honor. I think they're really fun, and they make combat interesting for a change. Yeah, I, I did say combat interesting. <laughs> but I'm reminded of um, our old friend Louisa, who talked about her experiences of playing D&D and Vampire at university. I don't know if she ever talked about this with you. Long time ago. Um, she said that she came away with you know, very different experiences and very different opinions of the games than most people have in that the dm that she played D with ran it entirely as a political intrigue game it was all about courtly intrigue and and there was very little actual combat in it whereas her vampire storyteller ran it as oh yeah here, here's your latest mission here's a tower block full of you know some opposing faction go in and kill them all 
Hmm. And I suppose if you're playing a Sabat Crusade or something like that, it's it's a game that can accommodate that. It's not certainly not the kind of game I'd run or play. But I suppose the point I'm making is that because your experiences of the game were that, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the game. No, no, I'm sure you can do a lot more interesting stuff with it. And likewise, I know that the Forgotten Realms, as I say, I like the setting because there is a lot of interesting parts that you can play around with in there. We saw a little bit of it, but nah. How about you, Paul? What, what did you actually end up doing with D&D 3 or 3.5? I think I played in some games at the club, and some of the games kind of took the form of a bit like Call of Cthulhu, but in D&D, and that really doesn't work for me. Okay. If I'm going to play D&D, I want to be going into a dungeon. I don't want to <laughs> be playing intrigue in a town and all that stuff. Everything before you get to the dungeon, and this is just my opinion, uh, everything before you get to the dungeon is just filler. The game is about being in a dungeon and fighting monsters. <laughs> He's proving my point! <laughs> For me. I mean, I know yeah. that's not D&D to everybody, because it's very much a game that different people have different takes on. Mm. But... That is the bit that I enjoy the most. And when and when last year uh, my friend Robin started running Tomb of Annihilation, yeah, this is quite fun. And then we got this bit where we're just going down into these garbage tunnels outside of town. And it wasn't really a dungeon, but you are going down underground and there's like carrion crawlers and stuff like that. And I just kind of sat back because there was a big group of players and some of those were really engaged with what was going on in that scene. And I was kind of at the back or something. So I just kind of found myself just sitting back in my chair and just listening to Robin describing all these tunnels and weird things going on and the other players interacting. And I thought, oh, this is great. I love it. <laughs> and that, you know, that became D&D. Well, then in 2008, Wizards of the Coast released fourth edition D&D, which, shall we just say, proved to be divisive. <laughs> mm. I, it was interesting. I, again, I was reading up a bit about it, and I didn't realise how much of it had come out of community feedback in the first place. So it seems kind of ironic how much backlash there was against it at the time. I remember infamously, when this, this came out around the same time as Gary Gygax died, and there were people turning up at Gen Con, apparently, in, in T-shirts that read, Fourth Edition Killed Gary. Okay, that's pretty bad taste. It really yeah. is. Yeah. I don't know the details of that, but, you know, I can imagine having interacted with, as we all have with people online and, and trying to gauge something from online responses. If you just listen to certain people online, your game could go one direction. Whereas I think when it comes to fifth edition, yes, they listened to the community a lot and they did very extensive play testing and took in an awful lot of input. Now, I don't know how much input they took in with fourth edition. They may well have yeah. taken stuff from the community. But I wonder if it was as broad as what they did for 5th Ed. I'd be interested to know how that was structured. Yeah, I mean, 4th Edition was a very different game. I mean, it, it followed that trend that we'd seen from previous editions of D&D, where they were trying to balance things and make things more coherent and modular. And it took that to an extreme, to the extent where there wasn't perhaps an awful lot of difference between a lot of the powers and spells and so on that characters had, that it was mostly colour. I mean, you did get a lot of exceptions there, but they tried to make it so that it was as much fun, say, playing a wizard at first level as it was a fighter. Yeah, and everybody had their, their niche or niche uh, to sort of <laughs> <Niche>. fulfil <laughs> and these various powers and so on. And I think it was a good game. Yeah, uh, It felt sometimes more like playing a board game. That's not really a criticism but it didn't feel like 
previous editions of D&D and it doesn't feel like fifth ed D&D. And I occasionally see people on Twitter putting forth a very well-considered argument for why fourth edition does things better. And I kind of restrain myself from commenting that maybe they're the same people that would say Betamax was a better format than VHS. (laughs) But you know what? (laughs) Fifth ed stroke VHS has kind of taken over. Yeah, whereas I I actually really liked fourth edition. I mean, there were problems with it. I mean, it was designed very much that, you know, you do a bit of role-playing, then you get to a combat. And, you know, I I, I went straight from first edition to fifth edition. I never played anything in between. Oh, sorry, first edition to fourth edition. In first edition, we very rarely used battle mats and, you know, it was all theatre of the imagination for combats. Now, in fourth edition, you really had to put down a battle mat and, and play out combats as um, you know almost like a light skirmish war game and i really quite liked that tactical aspect of it the only complaint i ever had about it was that the combats took too long to resolve i ran a short campaign of it at the club and what i found was that we'd have time for one combat in an evening so it really ended up sort of following a very formulated structure where we'd have a bit of role playing that would sort of lead to some kind of conflict then we'd have the combat i'd put the mat out and you know if i was clever i'd sketch down the locations before i got to the club to speed things up and then for the next two two and a half hours we play through the combat roll everything up you know and and repeat for eight weeks and that doesn't really work within that time period if you have longer sessions and you you get to have more role playing then you know that that works better but it did feel very restrictive i think you have just defined my version of purgatory <laughs> but I, our friend rich stokes did come up with a, a nice solution to it when he ran it i played in his campaign for a little bit he basically i'm trying to remember half the number of hit points the monsters had and doubled the damage they did and that, you know, as, as a simple hack, that worked really well. It didn't change the game balance very much, but it did mean the combat's played out in about half the time. And then, to coincide with the 40th anniversary of D&D in the second half of 2014, Wizards of the Coast released 5th edition, which you are the only one of us who have played, Paul. Uh, oh, okay. So, yeah, t- tell us all about it. Yeah, so to me, 5th edition looks back at the previous editions and brings in various aspects from various editions and keeps the rules fairly simple and straightforward. So it's got the various mechanics like the advantage and disadvantage dice, so it's very easy to apply modifiers. When you've got your character, you've got some skills, I think. It looks like less skills to me than like some of the previous editions. And the way you make the skills is really simple. You just take your stat modifier... And a proficiency bonus if you're proficient in that skill or it's just your stat modifier. So you're just using one or a combination of two numbers and that's your skill. And your proficiency bonus is adjusted by your level. So those things are quite straightforward. The spells, you know, there are a range of spells, much like most of which would be familiar to any players of D&D. The classes, you've got, I think, 10 classes and about 10 races, give or take one or two. I, um, I assume, again, there are supplements that flesh all that out. Well, not a great deal, no. Really? You see, with okay. previous editions, they've had, you know, by now we'd have, well, to be frank, by now we'd be on to 6th edition, going by the, the time yeah. frames. But I don't think there's too much sign of that. 
at, at the moment. I'm sure they're thinking about it, but fifth edition is still going strong. So it's one of the longest lived editions. So they've they've put out the the core books, the three core books: Monster Manual, DMG, and Player's Handbook, uh, and they've put out some campaigns. But they haven't put out Player's Handbook 2. They haven't put out Monster Manual 2 and all these things. There are third-party publishers that are publishing a bunch of stuff. And there are some books, uh, is it Xanthar's Guide to Everything or whatever it's called, which is a bit of a kind of Player's Handbook 2. It's got various things for various other options for the character classes and uh, various items and things like that that can embellish the game. But they haven't really gone down this whole splat book thing. So the, the number of products they're putting out seems to be fewer, but I imagine they're shifting you know, a lot of units to each of those products. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting thing. I, I did check a couple of articles about that. And even in 2017, the, the, their sales figures were higher than they had been during the TSR days between 74 and 97. And yeah, apparently they reckoned, you know, by that time, there were 12 to 15 million people just in the US playing D&D. Wow, yeah. And just going back to the what they've done with Fifth Ed, another thing that I like is when you create your character, you pick one of the classes. There's the archetypal classes, you know, fighter, barbarian, and, and cleric, and so on. And for the first couple of levels, you're just that character class. And then about third level, you get to pick a, a kind of specialization for your class. So as a wizard that I played... You're just a bog-standard wizard for the first couple of levels, and then you decide that you're going to be a specialist in evocation magic or maybe illusion magic, things like that. To, so there used to be an illusionist in AD&D. So there's no illusionist now, but you could become one by picking a particular ah. style of wizard. Okay. So it allows you to play your character a bit, because what I like to do is play the character a bit and through play kind of decide who they are. You know, that's kind of revealed through play. It's not some sort of mystic process, but just I, I initially thought, oh, I'll play an illusionist. But then as I went along, I kind of ended up using evocation magic, which is like casting fireballs and stuff like that, and ended up going down that path instead. And even going up to 11th level as a wizard, it didn't get that complex to play as you go up a level you're just adding some hit points you're occasionally adding some stat bonuses you're perhaps gaining one or two spells things like that so it's not a huge amount of work or additional complexity and often the spells you've got you know you can cast those lower level spells at a higher level with a bit more effect so it added a, a slight amount of complexity going up levels but it was still quite manageable and by that time you've kind of got used to what your character does so I think it's fairly easy to pick up and the core mechanics you know again reasonably straightforward not the most straightforward in terms of role-playing games but reasonably so so do you find then that fifth edition D plays more like the D you knew when you were younger or is it something different now no i would say largely it does i mean we do tend to use a battle map you know a grid which most effectively robin had a computer monitor that he would lay flat on the table ah, and yeah. tie that in with roll 20 and be able to show the maps to Tomb of Annihilation in colour on the monitor screen. And we'd put actual figures onto the monitor and move them around, you know, like a paper map. And I found that really effective because you'd got the full colour artwork and you'd got 25mm miniatures 
so that that was kind of a combination of those two things that I really like. I've seen that in game stores in the States where they've had monitors built into the tables and yeah, it looks looks very, very helpful. Yeah. So it does use the battle map not as extensively as fourth edition would, but you're still using a battle map. So I'd got a wand of lightning bolts and you know you you could use that map and sort of see when can i cast that because it's like 150 feet i think of lightning bolt that is going to hit everything on that five foot wide line and you know all the other player characters keep running and getting in the way (laughs) (laughs) i want to zap the bad guy but i can't because you've stood in the way again so yeah yeah so that's i like that so in keeping with the, the general topic of this episode, what, what do you think the particular appeal of that kind of style of play is compared to, say, the way that we'd approach Call of Cthulhu or, or you know, most other role-playing games where there isn't necessarily that tactical aspect? Yeah, I mean, I find this is one of the things that appeals to me about D&D is using miniatures, is using a, a map. There's that kind of I don't want to say tactical. I mean, there is a little bit of kind of tactical play, but it's just being able to visualize that on the map. There's the thing of being together as a group in a dungeon that I think puts all the players together. And what I mean by that is if you're out in the wilderness, out in a town, and you've got a group of six or seven players, almost certainly they're going to be splitting up. Two of you are going over there, two of you are going over there, three are going to the pub. And your time is kind of divided between, okay, well, let's deal with you two while everybody sits and does nothing. Whereas in a dungeon, this is one of the things I like, in a dungeon, you're all together. Yeah, you might split up occasionally. You might be split up by somebody falling into a pit or, you know, down a shaft or a trap. But on the whole, it contrives the game to keep all those players together. And when there is a combat or most situations, to be honest, but you know, particularly a combat, there's a structure that gives everybody a turn in order. And yeah. I think a good DM makes use of that and, and the game facilitates that of everybody acting quite quickly. So we've had seven players in the group that I play with on a Sunday. And, you know, even in big combats, it's going around quite quickly. It's not dragging and combats don't take ages. You know, it's maybe, I don't know, say 20 minutes, half an hour. And I was listening to Baz on um, What Would the Smart Party Do podcast, and he made the point that a 20-minute combat is probably about right. If it's Mm. shorter than that, if it's just like five minutes, was it really worth, you know, doing all that? I mean, sometimes it's just going to be I stab the guard in the back and he falls down. But if it's really short, you don't really get into it. And if it's like an hour long, it's a bit of a drag. But 20 minutes to half an hour, that's a a good chunk of time if it's a good setup and an interesting combat. So. Yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't really considered what you said about it enforcing party play, because that's something I struggle with sometimes in Call of Cthulhu, which is this idea of a party. So, you know, you have the classic situation of where you're wandering around town, talking to you know people who might have information about the investigation you're undergoing. And you've got the, the widow Johnson who lives in the old house on the hill. And suddenly she has five strangers turn up on her doorstep, yeah. one after another, just asking her questions and it's just yeah in what world does this happen yeah so isn't that an average day <laughs> yeah it's like the x-files but there's like not just 
Scully and Mulder, there's like two cars full of investigators (laughs) turning up (laughs) to ask questions. I mean, I think in Call of Cthulhu, we work that differently, don't we? So, you know, well, somebody's got to go and talk to Widow Johnson. Okay, well, Matt and Scott, you go and talk to her. She's going to be dead in five minutes. But (laughs) you go and talk to her and, you know, the other players go off to the library and some are going off to the spooky old house, whatever. So we kind of split people up and we accept that mode of play that we're doing that. And that works okay. I like that in Call of Cthulhu. But in D&D... I don't know, it doesn't grab me so much. I wouldn't give her five minutes with Scott's percussive investigation tactics. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I was just wondering if she was going to monologue. Oh, well, if she starts that shit, she's dead. <laughs> I mean, we can pre- pretty sure we know why she's a widow already. <laughs> yeah, the husband monologue too. Yeah. <laughs> but that tactical style of play, I mean, are there any games that you play or have played where that's been an aspect of, of the game? Savage and- Worlds, hands down. And I mean, outside of D&D, I mean, Savage Worlds is an example, well, you know, and if you can think of any others, are there any occasions where you find that engaging or is that just always a turn off to you? Immediately a turn off. I don't like sitting down and playing something that's akin to a board game without a board and more of an emphasis on mechanics than there is on story. I play for story and getting away from the real world. That just bogs me down in minutiae and it instantly kills my enjoyment. Uh, whereas sometimes I just want to hit a goblin in the face with a sword. I can do that in Pulp Cthulhu. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, in terms of tactical play in 5th edition, I was trying to think. I mean, you've got various character, uh, not skills is the wrong word, feats? character oh. abilities. Oh. There are some feats, but there's right. not too many of those and not everybody's going to have those. But every character is going to have some abilities that are unique to their character so like barbarian can can use rage to inflict more harm you know once they enter a rage they're in it and until they fulfill a certain criteria like they spend around not hitting a foe or taking damage so that the, there are things like that you can use tactically but there's not so much tactical positioning as there was in fourth ed with the, the flanking and all those things yeah. so it's a, it's a lighter set of rules that largely I think works very well in terms of getting that feel of combat. Another thing that I really like in 5th Ed is what they've done with the the short rest and long rest. Because in 4th Ed, you had the thing where you've had that three-hour fight, and then it's like, well, have you got any hit points left? I've got like three left. Should we have a long rest? Yeah, okay. Well, that in game time, that combat took 10 minutes. <laughs> now we're going <laughs> to all go to sleep for eight hours. <laughs> yeah. In, in, in fifth ed, you've got the thing of short rests and long rests. And they've done this nice thing where you can use the, the hit dice, your hit dice, and you can use those in short rests to recuperate. So if you're 11th level, you've got 11 hit dice and you have a short rest. It's like up to an hour. You can choose to spend some of those hit dice and you re-roll them and regain those hit points. So it's a very simple, easy to gain mechanic that kind of feels, I don't know, I want to say realistic. It's kind of easy to kind of figure how that works. And then you get the long rest where, you know, you get your hit points back and you, you spell levels and so on. And there are various abilities that that reactivate with a short rest or with a long rest. So, yeah, playing the, you know, a long campaign, you know, that, that structure worked very well. We've touched upon how popular D&D has become again with, with the advent of 5th edition. I mean, obviously, the the rules are part of that. I mean, you've touched on the fact that you, you think this is a more appealing set of rules. But I, wh- why do you think that, you know, not only has it come back from the dead, but it is 
it has grown more popular than ever before and has revitalised, I think, role-playing in general. Well, I think there's two major things. One is Stranger Things. I think you can't discount that. I remember in a few years ago when that first came out, I was going to say the year and I'm not sure what year it was. Yeah, it was about four years ago. Yeah. The first one. Yeah, everybody was talking about it Continuum and I didn't even know what it was. And then I went home and watched it and it's like, oh, wow. Yeah, because that totally captured the feel of being like, well, I don't know how old are the kids, like 11. About 12. Yeah, yeah uh, and playing D&D for the first time. That was very much like my experience. And I think for a lot of people would have watched that and thought, oh, I remember playing D&D back in the day. Mm. That looks like a lot of fun. Actually, it was a lot of fun. We could do that again. Yeah, and I mean, we did see a fair bit of that at the club where we'd get a lot of particularly middle-aged men turn up at the club and say, I used to play role-playing games when I was a teenager or a university. You know, the kids have gone off to university now. I have free time. Yeah, I want to get back into it. But what I think was different about 5th edition was that, you know, if you look at the demographics of the club and a lot of conventions now, I, I thought for a long time, that it was just going to be you know, a bunch of middle-aged people just getting older. And now, it, you know, at, at MKRPG, the number of people there in their 20s is, you know, they, they must be the biggest group there now. There's certainly a much wider demographic. And just talking about the Milton Keynes Club, I've been going along recently running some Call of Cthulhu. Right, there's eight games running this block, because it runs in blocks of eight weeks. There's eight games running, four of them are fifth ed D&D, mm. two Call of Cthulhu, one Coriolis, one Blue Planet. So like half of it is D&D 5th Ed. Now, even back when 4th Ed was out, there was like the occasional 4th Ed game. What, what, but there what wasn't we did loads see was, of it. We did see the occasional Pathfinder game, and we, yeah. we, we glossed over Pathfinder. Yeah. So Pathfinder was Peso Publishing. Basically, when 4th edition D&D came out and a lot of very hardcore D&D players said, fuck this, I don't like it anymore, they got the rights. Did they actually license it, or did they use uh, the OGL? I can't remember. But basically, they did a clone of 3.5, put a few embellishments on it, called the Pathfinder, and that ended up, I think, throughout the life of D&D 4th Edition, being more popular than D&D. And there's now a, a Pathfinder 2 just come out. But yeah, I mean, I I don't know what the future of Pathfinder is, but with D&D 5th Ed, I can't imagine it's overly bright, but um, yeah, you yeah, know, there's, but- there's a place for all sorts of role-playing games out there. Yeah, Wizards certainly seem to have got their, their market share back from Peso with a vengeance. And the other thing, hand in hand, I think, with Stranger Things promoting D&D, are, are all these online groups, probably the best known of which would be Critical Role, um, yeah, Penny the, Arcade, and the so Adventure on. Zone. Yeah. And I imagine that anybody who watched Stranger Things and had that inkling, oh, you know, I wonder if, you're, you know, if D&D is still going... And then they go and look online and they find all that. And they're like, oh, you know, I can get into this. There's people playing it online well, and not, here's how to play it. And Not just people. I mean, that, this is one of the, you know, I guess, staggering things about, you know, certainly some of the bigger live streams and, and podcasts, which is they tend to get, you know, voice actors or, you know, actors, quite often, you know, recognisable celebrities involved with their games. And these are big things. Uh, for example, Geek and Sundry did a D&D campaign where they had uh, Deborah Ann Wall as the DM, who was one of the stars of True Blood and, and Daredevil, hmm. uh, who's a, a big D&D enthusiast. 
And and so, yeah, I mean, this is a combination of that and all these, you know, middle-aged celebrities who, you know, seeing all this this becoming popular, are sort of saying, oh, yeah, actually, you know, D&D, that was a big part of my youth. You get a lot of writers talking about how much it shaped their ability to tell stories and understand stories. And, yeah, it, it really seems to have been an explosion. And whilst the, uh, economically, I'm not sure the trickle-down effect's a real thing, in role-playing games, I do think it is. So I think all those people coming mm. into the hobby and playing D&D, yeah, a lot of those are going to stick with D&D. It's the big one. That's all a lot of people are going to know, and that's all a lot of people are ever going to play. But, you know, there's a good percentage of those that are going to say, oh, what other games are out there? And they're going to play Call of Cthulhu. They're going to play all sorts of other games. I started with D&D. I ended up playing all sorts of things. We're, you know, that's a, a common enough experience. And I think it's where a lot of us started. Well, and, and recently there was that experience where oh, you talked about the popularity of some of these live streams and, and podcasts, where some of the bigger ones, so Penny Arcade and you know possibly more importantly Critical Role, played Call of Cthulhu. Yeah. And it was after the Critical Role one, wasn't it, that Chaosium all of a sudden found they just couldn't keep up with the orders of the beginner's set. Yeah, I think they had vouchers um, online that, you know, you could go through and get the beginner set at a reduced price or whatever, and they got lots of orders. And they flew Mm. Mike out to run for Penny Arcade out in Seattle, you know, as he was running Call of Cthulhu out there. It would be hard to conceive a few years ago that this would be the case. Yeah, and our, our friends at How We Roll, you know, Joe Trier and, um, you know, a few of the other people involved there got flown out by Wizards of the Coast out to uh, the D&D Descent event earlier this year, mm. where they, they got a lot of the more popular D&D podcasters basically just to sit there and game during this huge live event. And, you know, the fact that they're flying people internationally just for, you know, a publicity event like that, flying podcasters, I mean, that is just amazing. It is. Question for you then, Matt. Uh-huh. In what ways can you see that, that D&D or some aspects of D&D or settings or whatever might actually appeal to some Call of Cthulhu players? I think the, the only one that springs to, or not the only one, the one that immediately springs to mind is something like Ravenloft, because it's full of gothic horror. It's very much up against... You could almost interpret them as Cthulhu Mythos-style monsters in the kind of the scale of power level between you as regular pleb with a sword and them with the, the powers and abilities they've got. And plus, yeah, the, the tone of it, the theme of it, it's probably the closest I can think of out of what, what limited D&D knowledge I do have. Plus, you've got some larger campaigns for it akin to the likes of some of the scale of Call of Cthulhu adventures. Like There's a huge Mask of the Red Death mm. uh, campaign from what I'm aware of which I think I've got on my shelf and probably never opened. Like, but they kind of play on that whole gothic horror thing, don't they, like Strahd? And, yes. Uh, and there's the Curse of Strahd for, you know, that's been reworked for Fifth Ed, which I think I'm going to be starting very soon. And, yeah, I think certainly, you know, with some of, perhaps more with some of the older versions of D&D, there was perhaps sometimes that sense of horror that you did have sometimes quite fragile characters going down into dark dungeons full of traps and monsters. And, you know, you could play it as as adventure or you could portray it as being, you know, really quite horrific. And there are madness charts in the Dungeon Master's Guide. Really? Yeah. Ah. Yeah, of uh, remarkably similar to uh, Call of Cthulhu in that there's like short-term, long-term and indefinite effects. <laughs> Um, okay. which you roll on to, you know, get an outcome. But they're not like something you need to use. A lot of the fifth ed rules reading through it is 
you know, they've, they've looked at the, the user base and realized that a lot of people play D&D in different ways. So if you want to do this thing, go ahead. If you don't want to use that bit, that's fine. And I think that's something, that, reflecting on 7th edition Call of Cthulhu, that's something that Mike and I were aware of as well. You know, so there's there's bits mm. of that where there's optional rules and so on. And I think if you've got a, broad, a game that's got a broad appeal, then that's probably the best thing to do because, yeah, some people are going to love it if you're just like one size fits all. But there's going to be a lot of people that are like, well, that's not my D&D. Well, thinking about it, if again, from a Call of Cthulhu perspective, there's two books out there which definitely do help you to bring the mythos straight into your fifth ed games or oh, yeah. D&D games in total. Of course, the old infamous one, Deities and Demigods. Well, I mean, that predates fifth edition by, yeah. oh gosh. A long yeah, time. A long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the first edition of Deities and Demigods. Do you, mm-hmm. do you want to explain that? Yes, uh, it had a whole section on gods, and uh, I think it was just gods, actually. I don't think there were any monsters in it from memory. I, I think I did flick through it a long, long time ago. Yeah, it's pretty hard yeah. to get. Yeah. yeah, it's expensive too. Yeah, it has a whole section on Cthulhu Mythos gods. And then, yeah, a bit yeah. more up-to-date, Sandy Peterson's Cthulhu Mythos for 5th edition, which I did back on Kickstarter, so I have a nice leather-bound copy of it. Ah, so, and there's his yeah. module as well, right, Ghoul Island? Yeah, I think it's a campaign I think. Right. Yeah, it, or at least it's a series of interconnected adventures. I didn't back that, so I, I, I know that it exists, but I don't know anything more about it. So this seems to be one of the things is third-party publishers are putting out stuff for Fifth Ed, and that seems a pretty good way to go to me. Mm. So what, what exactly is Cthulhu Mythos for Fifth Edition? It's essentially taking all the stuff you would find in regular in like the Keeper's rulebook for Call of Cthulhu um, and put it into D&D. It gives you sanity mechanics. It even gives you the ability to play certain Mythos races. Like I think you can play a ghoul or a zoog in there as well. You can play a zoog? I think you can. Don't oh, quote me on it, but I think okay. you can. I know you can definitely play some races in there. Like, now I want to play a campaign with an entire party of zoogs. Just, just angry zoogs. They have to, have to be angry. <laughs> But yeah, it also gives uh, you insanity mechanics, if I remember right. Uh, goes into a fair bit of detail on the monsters, their stats, the gods, how to use them. And yeah, essentially, it's just using the core rulebook and putting D&D over it. You did the same with Pathfinder as well. Now, for all the dislike of D&D that I have, and I fully admit this is just me and personal taste, it is not my game. There is one thing that I do get a lot of fun out of it. Mm-hmm. And that's watching Seth Skorkowski's videos reviewing certain uh, <laughs> certain old modules. All oh, right, because boy, does he make it fun! Oh, so I need to check those out. I've not seen those. Oh, he's done loads of them. Really seriously, you need to go and have a look at them. They oh, are okay. they are a lot of fun, especially all the outfits he puts poor Jack the NPC through. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've got one last question then to wrap up our discussion about D and D. Obviously, for most people, D and D is their gateway into the world of role playing. For a lot of people, they never actually leave that part of role-playing they they just play D&D. Do you think that D&D is a good introduction to role-playing? I think it really depends on what you want to get out of role-playing games. If if you want that particular style of game, then yes, I think D&D does it very, very well. But if you want something that's maybe more cerebral, something that's more of a different genre rather than hack and slash and fantasy, probably not. But it really depends on what type of game you like and what you want to play. I think it probably is... It seems to have a broad appeal, even though the content, we don't actually see that broadly in media. Mm. I mean, maybe we see it more over the last few years of Game of Thrones, but there's not that many other fantasy-based D&D-esque 
TV shows out well, there? Well, actually, that's that's really interesting because well, I, mean, I know there's lots of different settings out there for D&D, but it's it's almost like over the years that D&D has become its own genre, that it has its own set of tropes, its own approach to fantasy, that, you know, in some cases, you know, very much did come out of things like Middle Earth and the, the Jack Vance books and Fafford and the Grey Mouser and Conan, but has turned into something that is, well, D&D. And, and it seems to have almost turned around the other way, that now instead of it being based upon a lot of fantasies, a lot of fantasies perhaps draw on D&D for its tropes. I think it was always that way to me. It was always D&D was the thing. It was the setting. The setting just kind of came out of D&D. It wasn't that I was trying to put something else on top of it. And I hadn't necessarily read Jack Vance. And it wasn't Middle Earth. You know, I'd read Lord of the Rings, but it wasn't Middle Earth. It was just a setting that somehow you kind of latched into, like it was some sort of folk memory. I don't know where it comes yeah. from, really. Because, like I say, there aren't that many TV shows where, you know, a cleric and a barbarian and a fighter and a wizard go down into a dungeon. I don't know where that, where is the broad appeal in that? But there is a broad appeal in it, mm. as is evidenced by the popularity of the game. Uh, and I think, you know, from that, people are going to get hooked into that whole thing of chatting with their mates and eating pizza and playing a game and talking and rolling dice. And then people are going to say, oh, you like that? Do you want to play Call of Cthulhu or do you want to play Apocalypse World or do you want to play Cult or do you want to play whatever they like? And some of those people are going to like those games and some aren't. Yeah. From my own point of view, for a long time, I thought that D&D was probably a terrible introduction to RPGs because, I mean, particularly with earlier editions, and it seems like this is less the case with 5th edition, that it was really quite a, not necessarily a crunchy game by comparison with, with some games, but kind of medium crunch, there was a lot of numbers involved, that you know, it was inherently a very geeky thing. And I just thought that this must be off-putting to people who weren't of a particularly geeky mindset. And I suppose what's changed in our lifetimes is the fact that all that stuff has become mainstream. Even before D&D had its, its uh, revival, its renaissance a few years back, media was getting progressively more geeky. You know, people were playing computer games that drew upon a lot of concepts out of D&D. And a lot of the things that I thought would be esoteric and off-putting had just bled into the mainstream. Yeah, I mean, what's the most popular over the years, big popular online role-playing game? I would have said World of Warcraft. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of others that are massive, but I would have thought most people have heard of World of Warcraft. And yeah, it's not D&D, but it kind of is, right? Mm. There's a lot, you know, in setting and in, in kind of characters and so on that's, as you can tell, I've not actually played it, but <laughs> <laughs> I've seen bits of it. And it's you can see a lot of the DNA of D&D is going into it. And like you said, with Fifth Ed, it's perhaps coming out of it as well. Mm. You know, they've, they've looked at the appeal of video games as well, I think. Whatever is causing it, I mean, it's obviously a wide variety of factors, but it has got to be a good thing for all of us, because even if, like Matt, you don't like D&D, I mean, that popularity is boosting games you do like. Mm -hmm. And we are living in a golden age of RPGs that I thought we'd never see again. Just got to enlighten them to the proper games now. <laughs> well, you're just the man for the job, Matt. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you.
Well, once again, we would like to say thank you to people. We would like to thank everyone who listens to the podcast, everyone who backs the podcast. And we have one new Patreon backer to thank. And now this is quite a special thing, because as we've announced, we are discontinuing our rather shameful habit of singing at people. So this is going to be the last song on The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. Well, unless we succumb to temptation and, and fall back into old habits later on down the line, but we shall try to resist. Trading standards will come after us if we keep calling it song. You know that. <laughs> and we have someone we all know to sing our final song to. Someone who has been very generous to the podcast in a number of ways. And it seems a fitting way to wrap up this dark chapter of our history. Yep, and a talented sculptor as well. So uh, if you look him up, we'll put some links to some of his works on the show notes, I'm sure. We will. And a big thanks to David Kirkby. Indeed, the man behind putting Padthulu into 3D. I really wanted that little little buddy. (laughs) Well, you should have bit more, Matt. I went way above my budget. (laughs) (laughs) But I did want the little guy. Uh, Well, thank you very much, David. And I hope that this is a special experience for you, as special as it is for us. Indeed. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. David Kirkby. David Kirkby. David Kirkby. Thank you. Well, that wraps it up for another episode. So, uh, well, it's season's greetings from me. Ho, ho, ho from me. And a bar humbug from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com What the fuck are we going to do? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I should just put that in there. <laughs> <laughs>